Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, you are listening to Freight 360. Whether it's breaking news, tips to increase your business, or just some good old sports talk, this podcast is all about having a conversation about the world of freight. I'm your host, Nate Cross. And Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. All right, welcome back for episode 60. Ben, we've got another great one this week. We are joined for part three with our friends over at Crowley. We've got Jerome Thomas back with us again and joined by an additional special guest, Evie Chapman. We're going to get into into Evie's role here in a a short minute. Uh, But first, if you're a first-time listener, make sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to us. Leave that review. That helps us rank higher and reach a broader audience. And also, give us some referrals. Share us with your friends and colleagues in the industry. So, First off, let's get into uh, a little bit of a sports rundown here. Jerome, we got you back for episode three here now. And I got to give you a a shout out on your Nostradamus-like expertise in predicting the NBA finals. So you called it. I I, I did. You know, a couple months ago, I said said it was going to be the Lakers that brought home the title. I felt like they were going to do it for Kobe. And... uh, Man, I I enjoyed watching the finals, watching the Lakers bring home that title. It was it was it was nice. So you know, LeBron's got uh, four rings now. So yeah, and, and I, I I did like the uh, LeBron James and Tom Brady tweets going back and forth. So it's always <laughs> uh, good. And uh, you know, they're they're the favorites next year. So we'll see if we can uh, bring it back to back. I ask this, Jerome. Even if he does end up with more than Jordan, do you think it's a comparable? um that's a tough question i it's so hard to compare you know different Different generations generations. yeah but you know that's a tough one i mean i will say lebron won so far he's won three titles with three different teams and that's never been done before uh so you know i think i think bronze the goat but I know that's a that's a hot topic, and it goes back and forth. And and the reality is, I, I just don't think you can compare. And that's and you're right. I think it's like anything else. You know, standing on the shoulders of giants is that old cliche, right? Like they are who they are because of who came before them and what they've learned from them. Yeah. Kobe said the same thing about Jordan, and I'm sure Jordan said the same thing about you know Bill Russell and the guys that came before him. Yep. I want to hop. In, I'm going to hop in here on LeBron real quick. So. Jerome, did you hear about this whole story? How LeBron's son Bronny was supposed to go into some like gaming thing with Odell Beckham Jr. and didn't show up because he got grounded. Did you hear about that? <laughs> yeah, because he was uh he got caught smoking pot. He like posted a video on like something on social media. Yeah, him just smoking. I, the I don't reefers. think it was. I don't think uh Bronny posted it. I think uh, I think somehow it got leaked by I think one of his like friends or something, and I, I think that's what. I think that's what irritated Braun is that, you know, he's told Bronny before, like, hey, you know, don't trust people or, you yeah. know, be careful, be careful, you know, what you do or say. He's in the um, limelight already as like, he's like yeah. 15 or something like that. And the kids already getting like offers to, you know, for full rides at colleges. And he's like a sophomore in high school or something like that. It's crazy. So, so the, the excitement here is that, you know, it, barring no injuries to Braun, like there's a possibility that him and Bronny might play in the NBA at the same time. Oh my God. So that, that would be pretty epic. Is that ever, I can't even think of any sport where that's happened at. Like my first one is I want to think of Griffey, but I don't think he ever played the same time as his dad. I don't know of any father son. Yeah. I mean, it would, you know, Bronny would have to do just like his dad, you know, get drafted straight from, from high school. Um, But you know, there's a possibility. And I mean, Bron has like, there's no slowing him down. I mean, he's what, like 30, 36, 37 now. And, you know, he just won a championship. I mean, I, I think Bill he's Belichick 42 and his year son old. coaching on the same team. <laughs> I mean, he, he could be in the, in the league for another five to six years. Jordan played until he was 42, didn't he? 41, 42? With Charlotte? Uh, I don't think so. Anyway, Evie, who who's your uh, who's your sports team? What's your what's your go to professional sport? Professional sport, yeah, I don't really follow that much there, but I do follow college, which uh, I graduated from UCF down there. So you guys are talking about 
Michael Jordan, there was nothing cooler than seeing his sons rolling up in those brand new uh, Nissan GTRs. <laughs> took me the longest time to figure out who owned those. And then it all made perfect sense. You know, it was an immediate envy there going, those are pretty fly. UCF. I like that. You, so UCF, was it, I mean, probably maybe two years ago, their football team was just on fire, like the hottest, hottest college football team for quite a while. Oh yeah. So we, uh, you know, as a, as an alum there, when I was graduating, that's when, uh, we went to the Fiesta bowl. So that was a huge first step there. Nice. And then pretty much I graduated. I moved back to Jacksonville and we went through some pretty dark times there. And then a few years later, next thing you know, we're all over ESPN and I'm like, okay, here we go. We're back. Let's keep that. Let's stay in the limelight a little bit. So good, good, good stuff. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's all for sports. Um, Jerome, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to say that you own me when it comes to predictions because I have, uh, you know, my Buffalo bills as of the time of this recording are four and two. This is before we played the jets in, uh, in week seven, but, um, I predicted them being six and oh, maybe seven and oh, and, uh, I've been wrong the last two weeks. So we're going to leave that where it stands. No, uh, no one gets to rebut that portion. The bills. I will throw in that Jordan retired at 40, okay, by the ben way, in 2003. State. We'll change if, the subject uh, for you. If, if Jerome keeps this up, we might be having to send him out to Vegas to play <laughs> the actual table. Put some bills on the wall. All right. Let's get into the episode. This is part three with Crowley. We're going to talk about Heavy Hall. Heavy Hall is this, this is a really good topic. We've had a lot, Ben, we've had a lot of people request um, us to talk about this. We've had a lot of questions on it. And I've never personally moved heavy haul freight, which is why this is great to, I can tell a lot of stories that I've been involved with and um, agents that I've worked with that have done this at various brokerages. Um, but who better to have on the show than the experts with Crowley. So um, Evie Chapman, the uh, apparently your job title is the, uh, the executive vice president of heavy haul. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that does sound what, pretty uh, Jerome, was it you that had this story about you were called the president of, or the, the founder or owner Puerto of Puerto Rico, right, Jerome? Like You're the yeah, founder was, of Crowley. That was a, a, an unfortunate incident. So yeah, we were <laughs> we were down in uh, Puerto Rico for a Reese Across America event, and uh, someone thought and announced me as the uh, CEO and founder of Crowley, and uh, they they were saying it in Spanish, so I didn't understand what was going on until until someone told me afterwards, and. Uh, yeah, so well, now when I go to Puerto Rico, everyone's like, hey, it's the CEO of Crowley. <laughs> El Palermo <laughs> picks you up like all your drinks are calmed. <laughs> Love it. So, so Evie, what, uh, what is your role at Crowley and how long have you been with the company? And um, sounds like you've had a, quite a bit of experience in Heavy Hall in the past. Yeah, so I'm supervisor, uh, one of the two supervisors now for full truckload for DFTS. Um, I've been here right over two and a half years. So working on number three. Nice. Um, oh yeah. I, I looked at my LinkedIn cause time has flown. So I'm sitting there <laughs> two and a half years. That's pretty love wild. it. But that's a, that's a, I think that's a good sign there, but um, I was brought in to do, to help with heavy haul and actually build it. So when I walked in on the first day, we have multiple, we have four different regions, right? And heavy haul is kind of, consumed by the four regions and we broke that out of those and really we started out with four of the larger carriers uh i'll leave the names out of there but it was very limited in capacity choices now okay at some level it was very easy because it wasn't that many emails or phone calls to make um but built that up from really four pillars there into a carrier base that would match the best of them out there today and, awesome. that was, and that was all through relationships, but then also it was interesting because in this day and age of data collecting and sorting, you would be surprised how many people are just friends with other people that are willing to give that, you know, their buddy's information to the guy that can get them moving and making some money. It's funny how big the world is, but how small it seems to be when you spend a little bit of time in, in a logistics world. You know, whether, you know, I've seen people that hop from company to company and maybe change roles in their company. And next thing you know, it's like, I remember that name. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like a small, it's a, it's a, it's a big, small world 
it's funny how that all works out. It is. Well, I, it, I remember it, it, like someday when Jerome is the CEO of Crowley, I'm going to be like, remember, I remember him telling the story about when he was in Puerto Rico. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a, you know, like a, a funny story there is while we're, while we were growing and getting, you know, more people onboarded there, there was a pretty much two brothers that worked at different companies and one was super responsive always on top of his game. And we always found a solution to get a truck to where it needed to go. And one day this other brother calls me and goes, Hey man, why am I not getting any love? Why's my brother always getting love? And I go, he gives me a truck list. He calls me daily. His rates are good and his service is unmatched. Why aren't you actually telling me where the trucks are at? Why are your prices always high? And it was funny because then that other brother calls and he goes, I heard I got a good, uh, good report card here. You did. You did, man. Not to mention it was your brother, so I knew it was a little personal, you know? That's I wonder how Thanksgiving day. dinner went between the two of them that year. It was probably pretty rough, not going to lie. <laughs> they probably had to hear from the dad, too. I was going to say, if parents had to step in and uh, break up the fight. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, well, you, you bring up a good point. So, let's talk about, as kind of an intro here on, on Heavy Haul, it's it's a different animal than the, the traditional full truckload. So, um, Ben, you and I have talked a lot on this show about truckload, and, you know, we're traditionally talking about a lot of dry van flatbed and sometimes we'll, we'll get into the reefer refrigerator temperature controlled stuff um, but heavy haul presents a challenge that the novice broker is typically not prepared for and it takes some learning experience to get um, you know really well versed in this part of the industry but it's a big part of the industry and there's a lot of challenges that go into it so when we talk about heavy haul let's just kind of let's just call it what it is. It's big stuff that's oversized, overdimensional. It's going to require some permits and in instances. Um, it might be over the legal weight per axle, um, depending on the shipment. You might have to require escort drivers or, you know, have a crew on site to direct traffic. You know, there's, there's all kinds of levels to heavy haul, but in general, there's a lot of difficulties that go into it. So, um, Avi, I'll, I'll let you kind of hop in here if you want to, you know, just kind of, you've already, you already talked about some of the difficulties as far as carrier relationships, but what are some of the biggest challenges you've seen in heavy haul versus just the easy traditional full truckload 53 foot drive? And I already named a couple, but is there anything else that kind of pops up to you? That's just a big challenge that is difficult for someone that's newer in this realm. So, yeah, one of the biggest things, and, uh, you know, being in the office, I know Jerome, when he was sitting over with us, he, he used to love to see me drawing pictures on the whiteboard to explain, but... He's a visual learner, I guess. It, it, oh, definitely. And, you know, if you, if, 100%. You told him, if you told him to draw it first, you would see kind of where most people default to. But it's not just dimensional. It's also knowing what you're loading. Um, so to use an That's example... A great point loading, uh, we could go into it, but loading like a bus or an RV, right? It's long, it's tall, it's low. What other, what other add-ons do you have? Do you have an AC bucket up on the roof that you don't necessarily see from the ground? So with, with most of the stuff that we're moving, both commercial and on the government, most people see the item sitting on the ground but they're not seeing all the other stuff. So the width, rear view mirrors, the pop out camper up on top, which adds another eight to 12 inches, which now could throw you into a different scenario with height permits. They also don't think about, they, you also think about height from the ground, right? But you're not thinking about from the ground to the top of the trailer deck, which changes a, it up too. That's a good point. And I will just to kind of hop in here, at least on the government side. So I personally have experience on the military side as a, um, as a transportation officer that helped prepare unit for shipment. And the good thing, at least about, about the military is that the government in most cases was smart enough to make vehicles where they have um, a shipping, they, they can basically conf have a configuration for shipping for a lot of their big vehicles where mirrors will go in and suspensions will be lowered and stuff will fold. Like it, that you is, could take a, it's like a transformer. Yeah, you the, take a massive yeah, the, thing and make it small. Just the, uh, just like the electric leveling shocks where you can drop the height on that. I mean, they definitely did a lot of R and D to get to that point. There's no, absolutely. Doubt. And it's much appreciated too for all the listeners yeah. that had any involvement with that. Keep that up. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I would say on the, on the commercial side, a lot of times, um, like I actually, I had a, a guy the other day that asked me how 
like he had a a printing press, which it's I know it's kind of a I've never seen one in person, but apparently for for an LTL thing, it was a little bit it was too heavy and too big for like traditional LTL, and he was trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to properly get it to fit in certain kind of um, trailer or equipment or truck. And and I brought up the point because I thought about this episode and I was like, you know, that's that's a smaller item. But overall, what people have to think about is not just the size, like you said, not just the size of the item on the ground, but what kind of actual, you know, flatbed is that going to go on it? Does it need a double drop or a step deck or RGN? You have to look at all kinds of different things. How is it going to get loaded up there? Can it can it, is it a prime mover? Can it drive itself up onto something? Does it have to be crane loaded? Um, you know, there's all kinds of different considerations that go into that. So just kind of, you know, coming from a, a traditional freight broker who moves domestic full truck of, full, you know, full drive vans of stuff or reefer vans full of produce or, you know, steel on a flatbed, these, they don't have to think about this stuff. And that's why the heavy haul is a little bit more specialized. There's a lot more work that goes into it. But at the end of the day, it makes a really good business if you can do it well. Great niche. Let me ask you that, Evie. I mean, for some of our listeners out there that would like to get involved in this or want to start learning more to maybe, you know, diversify their books or who they work with, you know, what advice could you give them for, you know, what would be the first, you know, handful of things that you would do if you had to get to where you are again from scratch? So I I think that there's something to be said for tribal knowledge. Um, I actually had a carrier reach out uh, a couple weeks ago and they're looking into getting some RGNs, um, some step decks because they're mainly flatbed carriers and it changes it up a little bit, but the tribal knowledge of the people and peers that you're around, I don't think that you're going to have a, like catch a lot of static or people worried about their market share. If you're asking the questions in the right way. So I advised that one carrier I was talking to, to reach out to pretty much their neighborhood carrier that they've watched grow. Mm-hmm. And that, that gentleman had called me back and he said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to try to help mentor some of these people with kind of what we've been doing to see if they're even interested in it. I mean, driver shortages and everything there's, there's deals to be made out there. I think that's a great point, Evie. I remember one of the first ones that I bid on for the SDDC, it was moving a satellite. It was huge. It was like a, and it needed to go on like a 13 axle trailer. And what I had learned after I started like making the phone calls to just try to locate where you would even find one of those is that everybody first was really helpful and just educating me. Like, hey, what do you need this for? What are you looking to move? And just willing to spend time to tell me what I should know and understand. The other thing that I found really surprising was that they all kind of knew who else had them. I mean, when you get that big, there's probably not that many of them, but they were like, hey, you know, you got to call this guy in this state, call this guy. I know there's one on this location. Call these handful of people. Give me a ring back if they don't help you out. Like almost every person I talked to, if they didn't have it, they gave me the ideas on where my next phone call should be made. And they were super helpful in bridging any of the information gaps that I had. Absolutely. No, I mean, I learned a lot that way too. I mean, it, it, I would say that the vast majority, it's an open door policy and they're willing to help. Just knowing that being the broker that gets them freight, if you're the guy that's known to be helpful, there's some more opportunity to be gained for yourself there too. Absolutely. Two-way street, right? Mm-hmm. As the broker, okay. you're looking to be helping them and say, hey, you know what? Maybe even if they don't have the equipment you're looking for, spend an extra couple moments and ask them, hey, when I'm out working with different projects and different shippers and different customers, what kind of business are you looking for, right? I always want to ask that question almost at the end is everyone thinks to ask for referrals for themselves. Pose that and ask that to the person you're asking for some free advice. You know, hey, what makes a good referral for you? I'll keep my ear to the ground as I'm talking to other people. And hey, I'm going to keep them in my carrier list. And when that comes up, it might not be tomorrow. Maybe it's six months from now, but I'm always looking back at that carrier list and going, hey, this guy hauls this equipment in this side of the country. This is what he looks for. When it comes up, you've got an opportunity to help them as well. Absolutely. And it, I mean, that is something different from, you know, just standard freight movements. It, it really turns into, if you do it right, more of a family dynamic than, you know, a transactional deal. That it, it, and that's the other side of this too. Can you speak to a little bit about how that works on the project? Because it's more involved. Like you don't just tend to the load, check, call it, and then you're done with it. Can you maybe take us through the life of, you know, I know there's not an average heavy haul, but maybe some of the more common ones you've seen, what that actually looks like from cradle to the grave. 
Yeah, I mean, we could use examples for moving 120,000-pound uh, propulsion shafts out of Virginia across country, but you're dealing with an item that's 76 feet long. It's 100-plus thousand pounds, depending on what what that system's going into. So 76 feet long, and you said over 100,000, so 30,000 above what an entire truck and full cargo should scale just for the item you're moving, correct? And uh, yeah, and add on there that you have to have the thing fully buttoned up like a good Christmas present, not the way that we would uh, do Christmas presents, but fully buttoned <laughs> yeah. up. By the way, the four of us would wrap a Christmas present, but the way like we would want somebody at maybe Tiffany's to wrap a Christmas present. I'm more of a gift bag type of guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Can't really do that with uh, tra- transportation though. So, so with that being said, right, you have you have to get the municipality and state permits for Virginia, which is somewhat unique, right? So you have to apply for the state because right there in that Norfolk area, you got all the channels and tunnels. I'm not sure how exactly they refer to it because the locals call them one thing and then I, you know, I hear the other, but you have to get two different sets of permits for the same spot, right? So municipality and then state, but then you're also having to figure out the route to get it all the way over to Washington state. So, mm-hmm you don't really have any driving um, driving restraints per se compared to other loads because it's just very heavy and it's long, but it slows you down much different than a van load doing the same lane. So it's so, a daily touch in. Um, so also- so let, me, let me ask you this. On the permit side, what kind of lead time do you typically have to have before this, before this type of load actually moves? Are you, are you talking days, weeks, months, what, what are we looking at? So, for- uh, so out of that specific area, it could take up to 14 days. Okay. So in certain, Virginia is an interesting one. It's a little bit more challenging there, especially with heavy or um, overdimensional loads. Um, most of the time it's because you're dealing with the state and the municipality at the same time. So you got two different things that you're trying to accomplish through one movement. Okay. Uh, but other states very quick, almost directly given to you. And I want to know this too. I've driven that tunnel in Norfolk many, many times. Who's calling it a channel? (laughs) I never thought it was called a tunnel. Isn't the channel that thing that goes from like England to France? Yeah. The, the straight, isn't it? The, um, people swim across it. What is it called? Yeah, it is. I'm pretty sure it is that over there. I don't know what it is called, but I've heard it. I've heard it multiple times. So I'm like, okay, it's stuck with me, you know. Ben, now I'm trying to think about the name of that. I'm straight... already looking it up. Time to hit that Google machine. I feel like the four of us should be able to. Yeah, the people swim across it. It's like 40 miles or 30 miles or something like that. Yeah, it's the English Channel. English Channel. The Strait Go. of Dover, and it's the Go Euro figure. Tunnel or the Channel, which is a 31 mile railway tunnel that connects something in England to the other side. Gotcha. <laughs> So, but, so that's a good point though, talking about permits, municipality and state. So let's look at a, let's say you're going, you know, across country, just like you said, do you have to plan out each state's permit and get them all lined up and figure that out prior? Does the actual customer tell you what permits you're going to need? How does that process work? So for us uh, specifically, when the orders are coming through, you can already see if it's overdimensional. We have, for the most part, the weights are correct, but depending on additions made after the item was manufactured, sometimes you get some fluctuations there. But when you're starting the process, the main thing that our customer with the government wants is the origin state, right? So that once you get it moving, when you pull out of that front gate, you're in compliance. Okay. Right. Now, when you're putting the order in, you're, you're, you're doing the origin to destination and everything in between. And it's telling you, depending on how big it is or how wide or how heavy it is, it starts connecting the dots for you. So then for each state, you have a certain amount of travel time through those, depending on what kind of permit you buy. So you can have like 30 day permits in certain scenarios there. Um, you could also have pretty much like a travel through one where you have like two days to get across Alabama. So it can get a little, okay. uh, it, it can get a little confusing in certain. How do you do the routes, Evie? I, I know I used to lean on the carriers to do it and they would, and I would just, you know, kind of throw them some extra and just be like, Hey, you guys kind of map this out. But like, how do you 
is there software do you use or like how do you actually know which routes you're going to be able to go through that you're going to have the clearance if you are over height? So in certain, like in most scenarios, my carriers are the ones that are piecing that stuff together at this point. Mm-hmm. We are working for some type of AI or software that can assist us with uh, collecting some of that as well. But to use an example, and this one, I think uh, anybody from the Southeast could understand, but moving 144,000 pound tank from the port of Jacksonville up to uh, Northern Alabama, when you punch that into the map and being a, a freight broker yourself, right? you have two options. You're going up through Birmingham or going through Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So you already know you're not taking something that's that wide or that heavy through downtown Atlanta. So normally it's uh, just the amount of time. I mean, I, I've spent so much time at the desk that you, you, you get a feeling of which direction you're going left or right a little bit. Um, but also too, some of these states and infrastructures, it, it seems like it's changing, even though you know we're normally in one city for a good chunk of our lives. Right. And it doesn't seem like much is moving. There's a lot going on around us that we don't necessarily see, but that's where eyes on the road with your relationship with the truck driver helps out too. Cause Birmingham, I would have never guessed the highways getting totally redone up that way, but now I know it is. So there's some, there's some travel knowledge there for you too. Can you imagine just, you know, a handful of tanks getting driven through downtown any city in USA and just imagine the, the look on the citizens' eyes. I, cause I, here's what I remember is in, uh, in the Army, we would go and do, uh, we, if we crossed state lines, like say we'd go from New York to Pennsylvania and we'd have to do um, a convoy request that would get pushed up to state so the state would understand that there's going to be um, X amount of military vehicles on the road at this time. And they gave us a date, a date and um, time window, basically, that we were able to do that and approve where our stops could be. Um, but a lot of times, if you would stop, we'd stop at like a, a truck stop to do refuel and stuff like that, top off on diesel. And just local citizens are like, what's going on? Like, where, where are you guys going? Did something happen? And it's like, imagine if it's just a bunch of tanks are rolling through. Mm-hmm. You never know. But sure. um, so I'll, get, I'll give you a good example. Um, I, was, I was pretty new at the job. And this one load comes through, and I think anyone can appreciate this one, heavy haul or um, heavy haul or van or flat, but it was a 15-foot wide bridge coming out of like Southampton, New York, heading to Ohio. And I remember looking at this, and I'm like, Southampton, what part of New York? Like, how far? Down there towards the tip of the island. Oh, okay. Just the amount of communicating with the customer of what we're dealing with. You only have so many places you can move something that big. You, you got um, hours of operation that aren't exactly normal either. So you can only go across certain things at certain times. But that, that gentleman did a outstanding job of just maneuvering a, pretty much a carbon fiber pool out of the Hamptons. Like a swimming pool? That's what they told me it was, but made out of carbon fiber, which sounded Carbon awesome. fiber? It sounded pretty I, awesome. I think those wow. are... I feel like those are getting more and more common now. They're like pre-built. So you dig a hole and drop them in That's versus expensive like laying material though. For yeah, a so you, so you can imagine on high rise. We're talking, we're out near the Hamptons, right? You said Southampton. This is the <laughs> yeah. tip of Long Island. Oh yeah. And I'm sitting there trying Not to Trump figure out. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out what we're doing with a carbon fiber pool just by itself out there and why it needs to head to Ohio. What are we doing building those over there? What is it just doing there? But that that was a challenging move because, I mean, you pretty much dead in right there into the business in New York. Yeah, there's only one way to get out of Long Island, and that's to go west through the greater New York City area. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that kind of, is it. Kind of stuck on an island, literally. Oh, yeah. Tolls and permits, that whole thing. But that, that's the level of a million dollars in tolls, probably. That, that took about two and a half weeks just to get the permitting and the escort through the city. And then that's that guy, had, and then that gentleman had to execute the plan, which is just as daunting as getting all the paperwork ready. So, what kind of let's say let's say a permit is done incorrectly, all right? Have you had any experience or heard stories from anybody where if they get say there's an inspection along the way and they don't have the proper permit or something something goes wrong and, and the proper permit is not um, not acquired, who's at fault? What kind of ramifications are potentially up in the air for that. Well, how does that look? So that, that's definitely on the operator at that point for not having the proper equipment there. But um, 
or the, not the equipment, but the proper paperwork. Um, and then it can get pretty bad. Um, it can get down to having to reorder a permit on top of the penalties and um, ticketing on top of that. It's also hitting, I would, I'm pretty sure it's hitting their driver score too. Yeah, I so bet. It, it's hitting their motor vehicle record, which then puts them in kind of a bad spot all the way around because you want that thing clean. So, I mean, it, and let's say that they loaded something that was way too heavy for just the total equipment that we're pulling it on. It could turn into pulling a crane service or some serious uh, handling equipment out to the side of the road at the scale house to reload it on the proper equipment. So sourcing a new driver with a new rig Ooh. to make sure you're in compliance with the state or federal DOT. So you're talking like cross docking with a crane by a way station, something that weighs possibly over a hundred thousand pounds under the correct piece of equipment. Yes. That's not, wow. that's a bad day right there. What's that's the biggest really bill you've ever seen on that? What's the biggest expense you've ever seen? I can't imagine I, that's cheap. I haven't seen that yet because we got a, we got a very solid group of guys, but I have heard some horror stories. Good answer, Abby. I like it. <laughs> Gold star. Um, so I, I do, I do like hearing some of these good stories here. So I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to give you an example of one that just kind of a funny one when it comes to heavy haul, um, had a driver, this is a company I worked for in the past. We had a, a rep that was moving a, an excavator. Um, and the driver just kind of went AWOL, couldn't get any kind of GPS tracking, wouldn't answer any check calls and had a brand new excavator that he was moving. Finally, like four days later, got a hold of the driver. The excavator gets delivered and it doesn't look brand new anymore. Come to find out the driver had stopped at his house along the way, offloaded it and dug a hole in his backyard to install an in-ground pool to save himself money. That's a true story. Like you, that is you outstanding. Stuff up, but like, that is outstanding. That's awesome. Very, very creative idea. <laughs> Didn't even clean it. Didn't like drive it through the car washer, try to hose it off. I mean, you'd have to power wash that thing for like hours, but I mean, good thinking on his part, but have have you run into any crazy, funny stories like that? No, nothing. uh, It was actually, it was probably the guy. It was probably the guy that was hauling the pool for you. It it might've been, it might've been that guy. Um, (laughs) None of that's actually been reported to me just because uh, being with the government, if there's anything funny with the equipment, I mean, there's sites that, if you unchain it in transit, you're taking it back to the origin if you're caught. So it's just not, it's not worth playing around with any of that for the sake of time lost or effort, just effort lost too. If that makes sense. If you're, if you're found to be doing something funny with it, you're pretty much going all the way back to where you came from to redo it again. Let me ask you this, Evie. What's, what's one of the largest moves, or I guess one single move, largest bill you've ever seen? I'm curious some of the pricing on some of these large moves. What are some of the rates that you've seen to move? You know, let's walk through the example you were going before, you know, 75 feet, 120,000 pounds. What were some of the quotes you guys saw on that? What were, what were we looking at pricing? Yeah, I mean, so there, there's um, probably a better example, but it was moving right around 150,000 pound generators that needed to be on stretch goosenecks. Mm -hmm. So these things were 47 feet long, had to be supported the whole way. Um, And we were getting, I mean, there was quotes coming from $40,000 to $170,000. So, I mean, it's, and yeah, and the guy that moved it was happily on the lower, but in between just because of the permits and getting there's only to kind of like you were alluding earlier, there's only so many pieces of equipment that can handle those weights. And then you throw the dimensions on there too, because the thing was just shy of 15 feet tall. So I remember the one of the ones that I quoted on, I didn't get it, but it was through the SDDC and it was the, I think it was the rocket that was taking up a satellite into space out of Cape Canaveral and it was housed or it sat in Salt Lake City, and I can't remember the base. What's Salt Lake City's base up there? Oh, Bill um, Air Force. Yes. Yep. And it needed to go to Cape Canaveral and then round trip after. And I don't know how they got it back, but then it was going to California. So it was like Salt Lake City to Cape Canaveral back to California. And it was like 
almost, I think it was like 180,000 pounds. And that was the one that I, they recommended. Everybody I talked to said, you needed a 13 axle on this. And then like, I spent, you know, a week or two just trying to understand what it was to put this quote together. And then I remember the quote that came back and I used like three different people and there was like a six week wait for this piece of equipment. And it was over six figures. It was like a $120,000 move. They ended up moving it. I remember talking to the people because there was a private company that actually owned it, even though it was at the military base. And they were like coordinating together with the insurance companies and whatnot, because it was over a half of, I think it was like a $500 million piece of whatever it was, it was going to take the satellite up. It was like enormous and super expensive. Imagine writing that insurance policy. I, I didn't. And that was the other thing, like trying to figure out who it was. There was a private insurance carrier. I think it was like Lloyd's of London that had a separate policy on it. It was a lot, but the funny part was how they actually ended up moving it was for like 30 or 40 grand. And they remember like, they're like, we're going to move it the way we did it last time, five years ago. And I said, can you send me pictures? Because everybody I've talked to in the country says the only way you can do this properly and correctly, especially with the insurance and what it's worth is on this 13 actual trailer. They ended up like welding the top of a chassis, the part of the chassis that connects a container to it, right? To another type of flatbed and then another flatbed. And then they chained this crate to the chassis that was welded like Jimmy rigged to this trailer. And I remember they sent me pictures and I was like, so you guys are going to move a half a billion dollar piece of equipment that's going into space by welding three pieces of equipment together that aren't at all made for this. They probably put some duct tape on it too. So it was definitely safe. I wish a total honestly, rat rod trailer there. <laughs> oh, exactly. It looked like a rat rod. And I'm like, I wish that I could have saved pictures when I left the company. That was the one thing that I wanted to take with me because I still had the pictures. And anytime somebody asked me about moves, like I would use that as an example in regards to how things should be done. And then how things are sometimes done. <laughs> like to this day, it still blows my mind that they're like, look, we're going to save the money. And I'm like, but if something happens to this, are you really going to get your insurance company to cover it? They're like, ah, eh, we're going to take the gamble. We're going to roll the dice. I'm like, we'll that, that's, a, works. Yeah. that's a heck of a gamble. <laughs> Speaking wow. of which, we actually had uh, one of our partner carriers. Um, uh, they do a lot of heavy haul and they actually moved uh, the space shuttle. And uh, so that was that was pretty cool. I mean, I can't even imagine all the planning that went into that. Oh, it's nuts. Have you ever seen yeah, that piece crazy. of equipment there that they use there? I saw it on like Discovery Channel once. It does these huge tracks to just move that stuff around even on site. Things enormous. Oh, yeah. The, the, well, because the they, they yeah. take off in one area and then they land in another area and they got to move it back, right? Mm-hmm. Well, so that that's that's when the space shuttle was in service and they, they land like in Houston and then they crane load it on this special plane and fly it back to Canaveral. Um, but this particular move was when the space shuttle retired and they had to get it up to uh, one of the museums. That's I remember. I and, remember seeing pictures of that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty cool. I don't know. It's like you probably what, 10 years ago, something like that. Uh, uh, Maybe less than that. Yeah, it was probably a little bit less than that. So th- there were a couple moves. Like there's uh, one of the space shuttles is up in uh, D.C. at uh, one of the air museums there. And then I think there's another one. Um, oh, man, I can't remember. It might be out in California. But, um, yeah, the the other one they moved uh, by road for a portion of it. And, I mean, they have pictures of, like, a space shuttle going through these, like, neighborhoods and, like, all these people are outside, like, taking pictures. Pretty cool. That's neat. We, uh, we moved, uh, Crowley moved a couple of the SpaceX cradles that help with the rockets, similar to uh, the crawler. But it's like these things are over 100 feet long. And I remember seeing the dimensions because it came out of Hill, too. And the interesting thing with that that brings up a topic, too, is dunnage. So when we oh, were yeah. moving those, we're, we're making phone calls. Um, they only wanted to move them on Bakelite which is like the stuff they made. Uh, well, Evie, hold on. Sevens out of. Evie, before you go past that, for everybody listening that doesn't know what that is, like what is dunnage and what is it used for? Oh, okay. Yeah, so dunnage is kind of scrap wood, um, scrap pieces that help support the items when they get onto the trailer. So it could be a built rack for two-by-fours that the item then can rest on or fill in holes on the deck in certain spots. So running them almost as cross members, try to keep it simple. Does that work? 
That's perfect. Yeah, it makes sense. What I always just call it trailer? junk wood. Yeah. So yeah, with the, with those two <clears throat> items, they wouldn't use just hardwood. Um, normally hardwood is acceptable. I don't know all the uh, different species that make up hardwood, but when I saw in the description, Bakelite, that is a, that's very hardcore wood. And I probably spent three days making outbound phone calls, trying to figure out who had Bakelite that was the size of a railroad tie. And what is only- Bakelite? Bakelite is wood? It's a type of wood. I'm not even sure if it's real. Sounds like a cryptocurrency. Well, so when you see an AK-47, like a real one, the wood on there is actually Bakelite. Okay. For the most part. So I think it's a manufactured wood, but it's very tough. But to think that there is, so there's a market for Bakelite dunnage. I would have never known, right? Um, When we went to go, yeah, when we went to go pick the items up, we actually paid a gentleman in a pickup truck to drive all the way back, which was pretty much half the U.S., to go pick the stuff up to bring it up towards Utah just so we could load the items. So they try to keep it right down the middle of the U.S., but it's another one of those things that you just don't think about with specialized movements when that's the only thing that, that, that you can load it on or that's the customer request. Bakelite is the first plastic made from synthetic components. And, and it, it kind of looks like one, right? It used to it used to have formaldehyde in it, which then I guess it looks like it got banned. But in a lot of cases, is still used and can be very very expensive. You said so, Eva. You mentioned how it was. It's the the material that the AK forty seven is made of. It must be durable because I mean, you could take an AK forty seven, throw it off of a hundred foot building, and then submerge it in water and mud for like three days, and you pull it back out. And next thing you know, it's just pop 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 pop. I mean, that's, works. The, that's the only reason that I knew works. what Bakelite was when I read the description. I was like, why wouldn't it? Like, that, that's a lot of Bakelite there. Yeah. So good stuff. That's fun. So some of the, um, one of the things I wanted to ask about, because I've talked with a lot of independent freight agents and licensed brokers who, when doing project and oversized heavy stuff, like I've dealt with people that have moved silos and wind turbines and just huge construction equipment for projects they will actually go on site at pickup and delivery to coordinate whether it's cranes or uh, work crews, stuff like that. Have you guys had any experience with um, having team members on site at the origin or destination of any of these large moves? Yes, we have for certain, certain scenarios, uh, possible marketing, you know, a good Crowley photo with the partner carrier photo Um, op. Yep. I mean, Jerome, we, we shipped Jerome up into North Carolina and he was up there in the rain for a week or so. Yeah. So often with these big projects, we'll, we'll have people on site coordinating, um, you know, not only for like the single heavy haul moves, but a lot of our heavy haul is done in like large project type moves. So it's not just one tank moving, it's, you know, 45 of them moving. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll have on-site reps to kind of manage uh, the communication between our customer there on site, as well as the carriers, make sure all of our paperwork is in order, make sure that the equipment, uh, the driver's equipment coming on site is, uh, is up to par. And uh, so a lot of times for these, these large projects, uh, we have people on site kind of managing and overseeing that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely good to, to liaise and have that representative there to, to help communicate. And I think on top of that, you get to see the fruits of your labor. It's, it's a rewarding part of the process. It, it will, well, I, I, so personally, I was, up I don't know in, about uh, North Dakota, but well, I was up in uh, cherry point, North Carolina, uh, overseeing one of the unit or one of our very first unit moves that we did. And I think we it's were Marine we moved, Corps base, right? Yeah. And we were moving 130 pieces of equipment, um, from every, everything from these uh, M wraps and um, Evie, what was what were the other things that we were moving? I was about to say you can't forget the hydro seater. <laughs> I mean, some of these things were enormous, but seeing all the drivers come and seeing the base load these out and 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 how they do it and um, it, it was it was pretty cool to see and it was cool just to see the the equipment that we're moving. Um. But yeah, we, we oftentimes will have people out there overseeing that stuff. 
That's cool. I like it. So we got a couple of good questions. I want to, I want to wrap up the show with, but before we get into them, do you guys have any final thoughts on, uh, on heavy hall or um, anything you want to point out as far as Crowley's relationship in the industry or anything like that? Um, I, I would say from our end, you know, I, I know there's a lot of people uh, that are, are interested in getting involved in heavy hall. Um, I think Evie gave some really good advice at the beginning to kind of uh, collaborate with some of your, your peers in the industry. Um, and I think that's really good advice as well as working with, uh, you know, someone like us that can kind of help navigate uh, some of those challenges. And, and we do have that insight that we can provide as well. I mean, Evie and his team do a great job with that. So I think, uh, I think that's some pretty good advice for people that are uh, interested in doing this, but maybe they don't know what, what the first step is. Right. I, I like that. Cause I, I think the, the point that Ben and I drive home on most episodes, when a, a topic comes up, that's fairly new to somebody is to learn from somebody that has experience. So I don't just hop into heavy hall. If, if you have no idea, you, you, you're not just gonna be like, Oh, I heard episode 60 of Nate and Ben's podcast. I'm going to go do heavy hall. Now I heard the guys yeah. from Crowley. It, this can't be that hard. No, you got to go learn from somebody that's experienced and, and learn the ropes. And then obviously if you've got carriers that have the right equipment, yeah, you guys are, are likely a very, very good third-party logistics company to work with to, to, you know, move some of that freight. So I like that. It's good. And, you know, the, the good thing, you know, not to, you know, tout on us too much, but, but the good thing is, you know, our, our carrier network of heavy haul, we can't just have any network of heavy haul carriers moving freight for us, right? We, we strategically took the time to find the best of the best, uh, to move this stuff. I mean, if, if you're moving a tank or a Humvee or MRAP for the United States military, um, you have to have a certain level of trust and confidence in your carriers that they know what they're doing and they know how to do it and that they've done it before and that they have good performance and things like that. So, um, you know, it, it's something that we take a lot of time and energy to kind of invest in. So, Love it. So that actually, that brings us to our first Q&A question. So, the question was, how do I get oversized carriers? Am I going to load boards? Is there a website or a database? So can, can you guys, <laughs> you don't, hey, sometimes you never know the kind of questions that we get. So um, can you guys talk through that? How do you develop that oversized heavy haul carrier network? You said you strategically have it planned out. Is this a slow and steady process? Is there, is there some kind of database out there? I mean, where, where does somebody build a, a network like this? Yeah, so... Uh, I'll, I'll take that question on first. So I think one, it, it is slow going. It takes, it takes time, right? You're, you're not, you know, there, there's different websites that you can go to and, and, you know, find some people. Uh, we had to take it a step further, right? We, we actually had to go uh, oftentimes out in the field and meet with some of these carriers one-on-one, -on -one, learn more about their business. You know, if you're moving something that's like, you know, like Abby was saying, like, what was it? 70 some feet and 120,000 pounds. You're not giving that freight to just any carrier. Um, so, you know, we, we had to take the time to, to really get out into the field, meet some of these carriers, learn more about their business, uh, see some of the projects that they've done in the past, um, and then make a determination if we feel if they're a good fit for, for our network. And so, you know, that, that took the better part of almost three years to be able to build up a, a well-established uh, heavy haul network throughout the United States. And so I would say if, if I was a customer and I was looking for more heavy haul carriers, uh, Crowley is kind of like that one-stop shop where, you know, you can come to us and, you know, basically you get to take advantage of, you know, one of the highest performing heavy haul carrier bases that we put together for the military side. And, you know, you can kind of tap into that on the commercial side as well. So I would say, you know, definitely reach out to us and, and we can handle the, that, that project for you. I like it. So the the next question, and Avi, I'm going to go right to you on this because I think you you pretty much already talked about this. The question was, um, how do I move a bus or RV? So the specific question, the the person asked that um, somebody is taking a school bus and converting it into an RV, and they wanted to know what how does a pro, what what kind of a process does that look like to get a, a large item like that equipment type yada yada i think you literally talked about a bus yeah, that, 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 that sounds like a fun project there so a school bus a little bit different than an rv right so an rv is is large right one thing that not a lot of people think about is an rv is 
pretty low to the ground. So I think it's lower than a school bus. I mean, it's been a while since I've been on the old cheese wagon, but those look like <laughs> got the height to them, you know? Yeah. Um, but they have specific trailers to move RVs. So if for the listeners at home, you want to see something pretty wild, it's, it's literally just Google bus trailer. So it is a low, solid deck. Depending on how heavy the RV or the bus would be, that's how many axles you're going to have on there. And you normally, for the most part, back them up onto the trailer so that the front nose cone to an RV is kind of hanging off. Oh, yeah. I just Googled it. That is pretty sweet. So I remember seeing my first picture of a bus trailer and I go, man, we, we need to find a couple of those. You know, like, <laughs> I, I think that's a multi-use item there. But um, because I, with the RVs, I've never moved one personally, but I don't know how you would crane an RV on the trailer. So either you're going to have to push it on. So most of those trailers have internal ramp systems. I was going to say a very long, low angled ramp is what I would guess. Yeah. And you don't want to be messing up the paint job on most of those, but yeah. a bus trailer. And um, I can just tell you, it's not normally cheap just because those trailers are pretty expensive. Yeah. And you got to think if there's a, it's supply and demand. If there's a lower amount quantity wise available, it's going to drive, you know, the cost and demand up. So Absolutely. It, it'd probably be easier to drive it. Fly there. It's probably. That's honestly a really good point. And then drive it. <laughs> why wouldn't you just drive it? Yeah. Why, why wait for vacation? Just go ahead and take it. Live <laughs> in the moment. Take your vacation now. Uh, you know what? After, after all this time talking about, it, I guess unless it's out of commission, just drive the damn thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. fair enough. All right. The last question, um, Ben, we kind of talked about this earlier and we can kind of keep this or unless the, unless you guys want to hop into Somebody asked, um, this is actually a driver, a carrier that asked this is, um, why bro- so why aren't brokers offering a packaged round trip deal on the spot market? So basically the carrier says, well, you're going to give me a load that goes from A to B, but why don't you just give me a load that gets me from B back to A and do it as one all-inclusive trip? So my answer is good brokers do that already. And you can only do that if you have the, if you have the freight to actually accommodate a round trip deal. So for example, like US Postal Service peak season starts in about a month. There's a lot of back and forth, zero dead mile or zero empty miles round trip um, type of projects that are available for carriers like that. But in the regular spot market, there's not always freight available to get a, a carrier from A to B and then back to A. You've got to have the available loads there. Ben, do you have any insight on it? I mean, that's really it. It's usually that they don't have it. If the broker's large enough, they leverage other customers. And if you think about it, even from its simplest sense, if you're a shipper and you have loads going from point A to point B and point B to back to A, it makes more sense for you to hire a driver and buy a truck. That's what Walmart does. That's what a lot of the larger shippers that have these round trips because they can keep them loaded and keep them moving. Mm -hmm. But if you also think about the job of a freight broker, right? You're going to be calling to establish relationships with a shipper. You typically usually get one side or the other. Sometimes you have shippers where you do inbound and outbound, but few and far between when you get into anyone's routing guide are there round trip loads that are then also hitting the spot market. Because even if they are available, they aren't timed in a way that would allow you to unload, reload, and come back. They may have that load. It may be available only on Wednesdays they're tendered, Mondays or when the other side of that's being tendered. So you would need a lot of things to happen correctly for that to be available. And that's just why they're not so widely available. But ask. I mean, that's the first thing ask, hey, do you have anything else? Because I know as a broker, the first thing I'm going to do is jump into my company system and see if they're there, see if I can match up the days and then get on the phone to see if that other broker can maybe push the shipper to do that. It's also a good way for somebody, if you've got a prospect that ships out of a destination that you've got a load going to, then you can actually um, not just fake it and say, hey, I've got trucks in the area. You can actually be honest when you say, "I I have a truck that will be there on yep. Tuesday. Do you have anything going back to here? So um, that's good. Jerome and Evie, do you guys have any input on this about the, do you, do you guys have any round trip lanes like that, that you, you've been able to work it out with carriers? Yeah. So I'm of course Crowley has the answer for everything. I love it. I, I'm going to play devil's advocate here because I okay. think it's a really good question. Uh, it, it's a great question. And in theory, it sounds easy. Um, but to Ben's point, there's actually a lot of variables that go into it. I would say one of the biggest variables is technology, right? It, if, if I'm a broker, 
one, I might only be looking at a small set of available loads. Maybe I'm only looking at one or two of our internal customers and we have other brokers that are working on other customers freight and, and they kind of act as like the CSR. Um, but I think technology comes into it because does the broker have the, the, the platform, right. To give them the visibility of, Hey, you know, maybe I'm only booking freight out of the Northeast and that freight going to the West coast. I don't, I'm not responsible for booking that outbound West coast. So, you know, I'm not really concerned with that. And so I think you need to when a load comes up and you're talking to a carrier the technology will say, hey, you also have this other customer's freight um, that might be a good uh, backhaul opportunity to offer that package to this particular driver. Um, I, I think that's that's the biggest thing right there. And I think it's also okay. reliant on having many, many customers because the chances of, of getting a round trip kind of package only using one customer is going to be very challenging, right? A lot of brokers, they have many different customers. And so it'd be finding that right opportunity between two of your different customers and making that round trip. And I, I think it's, I think yeah. it's, I think it's very complicated if you don't have the right technology in place. Uh, but to answer your last question, I mean, we do offer round trips um, when they come up. Uh, sometimes the challenge is, you know, are the ship dates uh, aligning to where it'll work out? So that's a good point. And on, on your technology piece, um, I have seen, you know, the like you said, you've got to have the customer base to do that. The larger scale a brokerage gets, this is when it becomes a little bit easier. You've got more reps with more customers, more loads in general. It's going to allow you to, to match more of them up. So that's a good point. Um, Evie, did you have any input on it? I think they covered the bases about as solid as it could get. Um, one of the scenarios I just add in there, even though it's a smaller percentage is even if you had a B back to a, wherever B is that driver individual does not want to go there anyway. So there's certain places that, and I understand that people just do not want to drive a big rig. Totally understandable, but you do hear that a lot too. Even if I had a load coming out, I wouldn't take that one. I got you. New York York city. Yeah, as I said, New York City. <laughs> yeah, and you see a lot of that. You know, uh, you know, it's right now with the whole COVID situation. When that was coming out, the Pacific Northwest, they, they, there was some serious coaxing to get to go up there. California, yep. New York, the whole Northeast. Um, which, I mean, it shows when when something big like that happens, it doesn't matter what's going on. That no, nobody. Nobody's just hopping on that one. Same thing. I mean, this goes all around. You look at, I, I've talked to drivers in the past that once you hit like November, December, they're like, I'm not going above the Mason Dixon line. You're out of your mind. I mean, the forest no. fires out West too, depending on how far you were going over. Yeah. People don't want to, I, I mean, I don't blame them. I don't want to be driving through that either. Yep. In a normal car, in a normal four wheel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Well, good, good discussion. Great show. Crowley. Gl- glad to have you guys back on here again. Uh, Evie Chapman. Love it. Good to have you on for the first time. Jerome, third time, third time's a charm. The Nostradamus of sports predictions. Gentlemen, it's been a, been a great show. Any final thoughts from anybody? Uh, so, so final thought, um, we're going to have to plan on, on meeting back uh, next year for the finals. Cause I feel like me telling you guys that the Lakers were going to win on this show had some sort of impact on the results. So since I want the Lakers to take it next year, we're going to have to do the same thing next year before the finals. I think you're going to be a bookie in the next 12 months then. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Love it. I want right. to add the, one of the, one of the big things we talked a lot about, and I, and I think Evie did a great job explaining the nuances in the work that goes around and the hours that go into doing a lot of these things, you know, whether it's three days making phone calls to find dunnage or whether it's two weeks to map out, you know, the permits and things, right? That's time. That's a specialized skill set. That's value add, right? We talk a lot on this show as a freight broker, as a 3PL, how can you add value and what is that worth? Those are all things that differentiate you from your competitors. It allows you to find other markets. It allows you to find other opportunities and it allows you to book more revenue for your company because you're saving somebody else that work. And just like Evie's been doing this for how many years right now, how quickly do you think he can do that? 
he should be able to charge for that service because it's going to take the guy who hasn't known as much as him twice, five times, 10 times as long. That's his value, right? Those are the values. Everybody had to start somewhere. Nate and I talked about this before the show. Evie started out somewhere. I did. Nate did. And so did Jerome. It's what you're going to do from here. That's going to differentiate where you're going to be, you know, two, three or five years from now. I love it. Well said. Good stuff. All right. Well, great episode until next time. Go bills. That wraps up this episode of freight 360. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to check out all the other episodes for even more great content. Check out the show notes for links to any articles and content that we referenced on this episode. Visit us on the web at www.freight360.net. And if you'd like to learn more about a new home for your agency, contact me directly. And if you'd like to learn more about me coming out to run a free complimentary sales training for your team, check me out on LinkedIn or again at www.freight360.net.